Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his crew to take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And that they did. In fact, Jesus' command becomes an outline for the book of Acts. In chapters 1 through 6, it discusses the birth of the church in Jerusalem. Chapters 7 through 12 describe how the church spread out into the surrounding neighborhoods of Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 13 through 28, in three missionary journeys and in his trip to Rome, we're shown how Paul took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And let me make a comment on Paul's many travels. This man had more stamps on his passport than any of us. The man crossed majestic mountains. He sailed the Mediterranean Sea. He strolled beautiful beaches and walked marble streets and viewed colossal buildings in the world's most magnificent cities. Paul witnessed natural beauty and architectural wonders. In fact, he could have described enough landscapes and seascapes and cityscapes to fill a travel brochure that would have caused the most avid tourists to salivate. And yet when you scan Paul's letters, when you read Luke's accounts of his travels, you'll never once find a verbal postcard. There's not a single line of Paul's writings wasted on his physical surroundings and their descriptions. No, Paul's focus was not on the beaches or on the buildings he saw, but on the Lord he served and the souls that needed to be saved. On the road to Damascus, Paul was blinded by a bright light in the glory of Jesus. And though his eyes were restored, though they regained their sight, for the rest of his life, he remained blind to everything else but the Lord and his gospel. This is why he was determined to preach to the Jews in Jerusalem, even though he knew he would be arrested and jailed. Which brings us to Acts chapter 25, verse 13. Paul is arrested. He's in Caesarea. He's in the custody of the Roman governor Festus. He's been tired of being a political football, being kicked back and forth. He had appealed his case to Caesar, but that had caused a problem for Governor Festus. Festus can't send Paul to Rome without suitable charges, and the accusations were pretty flimsy. Festus needed to bolster his beef against the prisoner. And so when visitors arrive, he thinks he's found some help, and that's where we pick it up in verse 13. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Here two more characters make their act's debut. King Agrippa II was the last of the Herods. By this time, Rome had stripped his family of almost all its royal power. Agrippa was a puppet. He was a mere figurehead. And Bernice was his sister. She was also the sister of Drusilla, the wife of the former governor, Felix. Drusilla and Bernice were both of the Herodian family. They were great-granddaughters of Herod the Great. History tells us that Bernice had three failed marriages, and she ended up living as co-regent in the court of her brother Agrippa II. Appearance-wise, Bernice was a beauty, but character-wise, she was morally bankrupt. 
Several ancient writers note that she and Agrippa II, they lived in an incestuous relationship. Agrippa II never married. Later in life, Bernice left Agrippa to have an affair with the infamous Roman Titus Vespasian, the general who conquered Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. Eventually, Bernice left Titus and returned to Agrippa. Obviously, she was flirtatious and fickle. Well, she and Agrippa, they were like a Hollywood couple. And here, Governor Festus invites them to the party to help him interview Paul and decide on appropriate charges. Well, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive." See, Paul had been painted as the Jews' public enemy number one. Felix figured that he was guilty of violent crimes or terrorist activities. He was surprised, though, to hear that what angered the Jews were religious matters, and specifically that Paul claimed that Jesus was alive. Here he communicates this to Agrippa. Now remember, this Festus, this Governor Festus, he was the new kid on the block. He was ignorant of the recent history. And so he continues, and because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, and of course Augustus was one of the emperor's official titles, it meant the revered or the august one, when he asked to be, appeal his case to the Caesar, He said, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. And then verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, well, I also would like to hear the man myself. And boy, Festus jumps on that. He says, tomorrow you shall hear him. And so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, At Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Now, this auditorium that Luke mentions is always one of our highlights on any of our trips to Israel. The Roman amphitheater in Caesarea is a magnificent venue. It's situated there on the beach where 3,000 spectators face seaward toward the bright blue Mediterranean. Its focal point was the enormous marble stage. Stairs led down from the stage into the dark stone holding rooms below the floor. This auditorium is still used for performances today. Not long ago, Paul Simon performed a concert 
uh, in the amphitheater. And I had all kinds of uh, pictures and all about Paul in the amphitheater. I was going to make a joke out of it, but it wasn't that funny. Well, about nine rows up in the seating, in the middle of the bleachers, is a platform for dignitaries. These were the box seats. And whenever we're there in the amphitheater, I always like to take our group and we sit in those seats where Festus and Agrippa and Bernice heard Paul deliver his testimony. I love teaching this chapter in the exact place that it happened. Imagine the stadium, though. It's packed to the gills. Everybody who's anybody has gathered for the show. Roman officials stationed in Caesarea, Jewish aristocrats from Jerusalem, all the leading dignitaries were there. The last to be seated would have been Governor Festus, followed by King Agrippa and Bernice. I picture them prancing into the amphitheater with great pomp and circumstance, with some fanfare behind them. Imagine a red carpet walk at the Oscars. These three strutted in like peacocks. Finally, out of the dark recesses, of the substage, Paul was thrust up into the blinding sunshine. He's now center stage in front of the hostile crowd. You can hear the jeers and the sneers being thrown at him. He could barely see through his squinted eyes. The sun was so bright. Now remember the physical description that tradition gives us of the apostle Paul. Bald-headed, bow-legged, a hunchback, runny eyes, his nose was crooked, he had bushy eyebrows, looked like a caterpillar coming across his forehead. On his tiptoes, Paul was barely five feet tall. Paul was a pitiful human specimen to behold. He was weak and fragile and small. Now compare him to the well-dressed and dignified crowd filling the theater that day. Festus is clothed in his Roman armor and his military splendor. Agrippa wears his royal robes. His gorgeous mistress in an elegant gown is sitting by his side. Most folks in his shoes would have been more than a little intimidated, but not Paul. And what follows shows the power and the composure of a man who has been filled with the Spirit of God. In verse 24, Festus begins... And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing certain to write to my Lord, that is the Caesar, concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Seems right to me, too. I mean, how could Festus clog up the legal system in Rome with a prisoner and a trial without any substantial charges? What was Paul's crime? Festus needs a reason to depart Paul to Rome, to deport Paul to Rome. And so he asked for Agrippa's help. Chapter 26. Well, then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. 
So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Now, what an introduction. Paul's been under arrest for two years. He'd been used by the Romans. He'd been threatened by the Jews. And yet he stands before the crowd and he says he's a happy man. Obviously, Paul's joy came not from his circumstances, but from the spirit who lived inside him. That's where our joy comes from as well. And then verse 3 especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul was happy to have King Agrippa to hear his case. Agrippa was a Herod, a card-carrying member of the Jewish establishment. He'd grown up in Israel. He was knowledgeable of the nation's recent events. Agrippa would be the perfect person to issue a fair verdict. And in verse 4, Paul again shares his testimony. Remember, he was always quick to share his testimony. I hope you too have worked on your testimony. I hope you got it down. I hope you're quick to share your testimony. You know, testimony is a powerful thing. I mean, you don't need to have a lot of theology under your belt or a lot of, you know, apologetics or all the rest of it, you can be an effective witness for Jesus just by knowing your testimony and sharing it confidently. Nobody can argue with you when you tell them what Jesus has meant in your life and done for your life. Well, Paul has a powerful testimony and he shares it. He says, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Remember, Saul was his name before Paul. And he had been a familiar face in the Jerusalem yeshivas and in the temple precincts. His credentials were well known. Before his conversion, he was a leading rabbi. He says, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Saul was a loyal Jew. He was a devout legalist. No one was stricter than Rabbi Saul. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul had hoped for nothing more than what every Jew before him had hoped for, and that was for salvation. Paul wanted to be made right with God and live forever. And this is every man's hope. Thus Paul asks in verse 8, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? You see, the bottom line to Paul's belief, in fact, the core principle of Christianity, as well as the primary source of Jewish opposition against Paul, was Jesus' resurrection. But to Paul, it made sense. If God can provide eternal life to all men, then surely he can raise his own son from the dead. If God is God, why doubt Jesus' resurrection? You know, sometimes we're slow to believe a miracle because we forget who it is that's performing the task. Ask me to lift a 300-pound barbell, and you might have your doubts. Maybe. 
But ask an NFL lineman to lift that barbell, and you'll assume, sure, no problem. Likewise, miracles that are difficult for us become easy for an almighty God. Take, for example, Isaiah 40, verse 12. The prophet Isaiah, he makes an astonishing, two astonishing statements about God. First, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's amazing. Think about it. The 21 major oceans that spread across the earth cover a total area of 138 million square miles. The combined average depth of those oceans is 4,200 feet. Friends, that's a lot of water. And yet Isaiah declares that God holds the oceans in the cup of his hand. We serve a big God. And the second statement that Isaiah makes there is that God has measured heaven with a span. You know, an ancient span was the distance between the king's thumb and his pinky. That was a span. There you go. Now think of the heavens. You know, if our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, were the size of North America, did you know that our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup? You could fit it in a coffee cup. That's the size of our galaxy. But the heavens consist of 100 million galaxies. Our universe is enormous. And yet, guess what? It all fits in the span of God's hand. It's been said, if you can believe Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you should have no problem believing the remaining 31,102 verses. Hey, if God created all things, then he can do with all things whatever he pleases, including raising his son Jesus from the dead. This is why Paul asked the crowd, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead. Verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. At one time, Saul had been on the opposing team. He had attacked Christianity. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul had been the high priest's henchman. He'd done his dirty work. He was the one who rounded up the Christians and threw them into prison. He had overseen the executions. Case in point was Stephen. Here when Paul says, I cast my vote against them, some scholars believe that this implied he was an official member of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish Supreme Court. And his vote to execute the Christian could always be counted on when the court was in session. Verse 11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This Saul was vicious, always on the warpath. He threatened the followers of Jesus with death and even worse unless they recanted their faith, he would kill them. Notice he compelled them to blaspheme. Did Saul ever take a knife 
to a child's throat and say to that child's dad, hey, you renounce Jesus or I'm going to slit your boy's throat. He compelled them to blaspheme. He forced them to deny their faith. What horrors did Saul devise to torture the Christians? This Saul was a first century terrorist. But here's the provocative point. If God was willing to forgive a Saul of such unspeakable crimes, don't you think he'll forgive you of your sin? Hey, Saul's conversion was grace in action. If God can forgive a Saul, then he can forgive us all. In verse 11, Saul says he not only ran Christians out of Jerusalem, he tracked them, he says, to foreign cities. And it was on one such warpath to Damascus that Saul got intercepted. Verse 12, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commissions from the chief priests, at midday, O king, and I I like this, this kind of carries the storyline of a typical Western God's showdown with Paul takes place at high noon. And along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language. The risen Lord spoke to Paul. And notice he spoke in Hebrew. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. He wasn't against Judaism. He was its fulfillment. In fact, have you ever wondered what language does God speak? Well, we all know that God speaks in a southern accent, but have you ever thought about what language? Here he spoke in Hebrew, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love the Lord's analysis here. Saul was persecuting Christians, but Jesus had taken it personally. Why are you persecuting me? Rest assured, Whenever the church encounters persecution, Jesus takes it very, very personally. And then the Lord said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And indeed it is. You know, goads were sharp pointed sticks that were used to prod the cattle along. Today, high-tech cowboys use electric shockers to maneuver and to steer the steers where they want them to go. Well, the witness of Stephen had prodded Saul. The faithfulness of the saints Paul persecuted had shocked his conscience. The growth of the church, despite his best efforts, had goaded him into reconsidering. A lot of things that God was using to stir up Paul and to force him to think through his conclusions. One commentator writes, The lightning of Damascus struck no empty void but found plenty of flammable material in the soul of Paul. God was working in his heart. Even before the divine encounter on the road to Damascus, God had been prodding and Saul had been bucking. And you know, God continues to prod people even today. We call it conviction. God shines his light on his truth, the truth of our sin. He exposes our need for a savior. He wrestles with us over our stubbornness. God is always trying to prod us in the direction he wants us to go. You know this is true. 
where God is at work prodding in your life as well. There's some issues right now in your life that God has put his finger on. Don't ignore them. You can't shake it. When God puts his finger on it, you got to deal with it. On the road to Damascus, God finally pinned Saul. It's a takedown. He humbles Rabbi Saul with his glory and grace. But he had been working on his heart for many years prior. Verse 15. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. You know, I love this. God knocks him down. Jesus forces stubborn Saul to his knees. But then the same God stands him back up on his feet. And friends, this is how God treats us. Oh, he'll knock us down, but then he lifts us up. You know, Jesus turns Saul's into Paul's. The word Saul means requested one. Paul means little. Rabbi Saul thought he was the religious celebrity, the man in demand. But the apostle Paul knew he was a simple servant, empowered and employed by a big God. Well, Jesus adds, For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Jesus appeared to Paul for the purpose of making him a minister and a witness. You know, the Greek word translated minister, it means under rower. It referred to the slaves who manned the oars in the belly of the Roman ships, the galley ships. Paul threw away his celebrity status to row for Jesus. He became a servant. And he was also called to be a witness. You you see, in a courtroom, a witness is not a judge who renders the verdict. He's not the clerk who keeps the records. Neither is he the lawyer who argues the cases. A witness is simply the person who tells their story. And this is a good reminder to us. It's not our job to cast judgments or to keep records or to argue cases. Guys, we're just the witness. It's our job to simply tell people what Jesus has done for us. I believe all Christians have been called to be a minister and a witness. All of us should be willing to grab an oar and tell our story. And then verse 17, the Lord also told Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I will now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Remember at that particular moment, Paul was sitting on a curb blind as a bat. He was on the road to Damascus. He had been blinded by a bright light, yet now the Lord tells Paul that he'll be used to open the eyes of Jews and Gentiles and turn people from darkness to light. Soon Paul will recover his spiritual, his physical sight, but he'll spend the rest of his life helping people see spiritually. And you know, there is no greater joy than to help someone see. Have you found this? 
I once watched a documentary about a group of ophthalmologists who were helping cataract patients in Africa. You know, cataract removal is a relatively simple procedure, but it makes the difference between blindness and sight. And it was a joy to watch the reactions of the people who had benefited from this surgery. They had literally gone from darkness to light. They were elated. It was life-changing for them, and it was so rewarding for the doctors. And you know, the same is true for anyone who helps a person open their spiritual eyes. Have you ever done this? Have you ever shown someone a scripture and prayed for them and then helped them understand it and apply it to their lives and watch them get it? Suddenly they see it for themselves. There's nothing more thrilling than to lead someone out of darkness into light. And then Paul continues his address in verse 19. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Paul was knocked down and humbled as an example to others. Now all men, Jews and Romans, he says, need to repent, turn to God, not just make empty promises, but really show in your behavior that you're willing to change. Do works befitting repentance. And Paul was adamant we repent. In fact, he paid a steep price for this insistence. He adds, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. You remember Noah wasn't ridiculed and mocked for standing on the deck of the ark and shouting, something good is going to happen to you today. No, he wasn't. Jeremiah wasn't thrown into the dungeon for preaching your best life now. Daniel wasn't heaved to the lions for chanting, smile, God loves you. Amos didn't confront the wicked priest with, I'm okay, you're okay. John the Baptist wasn't beheaded for having a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on his Prius. And Paul wasn't arrested for encouraging people to look great, feel great. All these people preached repent, and that's what got them into trouble. That was the reason they were persecuted. And let me tell you, pastors today will be opposed if they tell people the truth and insist on the need of repentance. We need men and women with courage who are willing to go into their workplace and into their daily lives and preach the necessity of repentance. And then verse 22, Paul continues, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great. And those were the two types of people in the crowd that day. There were average Jews, and then there were these dignitaries, Agrippa and Bernice, But to small and great, saying, No other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says all he did was repeat what Moses and the prophets had spoken. The truth they'd preached had been foretold in the Old Testament. Paul's accusers needed to read their Bible. Everything Paul believed and preached about Jesus had been predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 24. 
Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Festus interrupts Paul. He thinks Paul has gone nuts, that his study of the Scripture has forced him into this absurd conclusion. Understand, the Romans were naturalists. Thus, the idea of a corpse coming back to life was completely foreign to Festus's thinking. The governor assumed that Paul was crazy, but Paul was the sanest person present that day. Reminds me of the inspector who was reviewing procedures at the state insane asylum. He asked how the hospital evaluated if a person needed to be institutionalized. Well, the asylum director, he took him to a bathroom and he pointed to this tub. He explained, he said, well, what we do is we fill the tub up with water and we show the person a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. And then we ask them to empty the tub. Well, the state inspector, he said, oh, and if they don't ask for the bucket, you admit them. The director replied, no, if the person doesn't pull the plug, we admit them. Do you want a room on the first or the second floor? Hey, Festus thought that Paul needed to be institutionalized. But Paul was the only person in the arena that day with the courage and the honesty to embrace the obvious. Paul replies to Festus, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Paul wasn't crazy, and the truth isn't hazy. Paul points out that Christianity is a reasonable faith. Guys, the truths we believe from creation to the parting of the Red Sea to the resurrection of Jesus are rational and logical and historically verifiable facts. All Paul had done was to speak the words of truth and reason. Verse 26, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Now suddenly, Paul turns the conversation from the Roman governor to the Jews sitting next to him. He puts King Agrippa on the spot. See, Festus was the new kid on the block, but Agrippa and Bernice were the locals. They had been alive, living in the land of Judea 27 years earlier when a carpenter from Nazareth preached in their streets and worked miracles. Agrippa and Bernice had read the headlines in the Jerusalem Post. The resurrection of Jesus had been big news. They had been there the day after. They knew the stunning evidence. As Paul reminds him, hey, this thing was not done in a corner. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, Paul reels off a list of numerous eyewitnesses who saw firsthand the risen Christ. And he did so to challenge all doubters to visit these people, verify their stories. If you don't believe this, there are people out there who saw it firsthand. There were eyewitnesses. The early Christians weren't afraid to put the truth truth of the resurrection to the test. You know, it's vital to realize Christianity is not just a list of dogmas or philosophies. It's more than abstract ideas. Christianity is a set of truths based on falsifiable facts. From the very beginning, 
all the Jews had to do to shoot down Christianity was to produce the corpse. Hey, bring up Jesus' body and you'll end the whole thing. A body would have proved a dud, proved Christianity a dud from the launching pad. Paul reminds Agrippa that the foundation of Christianity is not some clandestine mystical act performed in a secluded room in a secret location. Oh no. God invaded time and space for all the world to see on a hill outside of Jerusalem in full view of the entire world and all of history. God's only son was brutally nailed to a Roman cross. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. That tomb was empty. And to this day, 2,000 years later, you can go to the land where his body was laid. And you can see for yourself that that tomb is empty. It's still empty. Hey, this thing was not done in a corner, Paul says. And Agrippa knew he was telling the truth. The apostle grows even bolder in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Paul doesn't even give him time to answer. Of course Agrippa believes. All Jews believed what was written by the Hebrew prophets. Paul has Agrippa on the ropes and he refuses to let him off the hook. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And here is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. He was almost persuaded. And yet, as the old saying goes, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Almost is not enough for a man to be saved. As Charles Spurgeon put it, almost persuaded to be a Christian is like the man who was almost pardoned but was hanged. Like the man who was almost rescued but burned in the house. A man that is almost saved is damned forever. Recall Governor Felix. He looked for a more convenient time. Here Agrippa was almost persuaded. God was tugging on both men's hearts. But they failed to promptly respond to God's call And sadly, there's no evidence that either man got another opportunity. That's why the best time to come to Christ, friends, is right now. And then in verse 29, Paul answers Agrippa. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. In his defense, Paul had zeroed in on Agrippa, but now he expands the invitation to everyone present that day. His goal was to persuade everyone in the theater to become a Christian, and I'm sure many did. It's interesting he persuaded them. You know, we can't force folks to be Christians, nor would we want to. But we should try to persuade them with the truth. And whenever we present the gospel, our listeners should always understand that the gospel necessitates a decision and realize no decision or delaying a decision is a decision to say no, but a yes. Saying yes to Jesus is the greatest decision that anyone will ever make. And then verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice And those who sat with them, 
And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's interesting, when these proceedings started, it was Paul on trial before King Agrippa. But somewhere in the course of the events, the tables had turned. I think in the end, it was Agrippa who was on trial before Paul and before his Lord Jesus. And then Acts 27, and we're going to get a little head start on next week. Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And remember, Augustus was a title for the emperor. And so the Augustan regiment may have been a battalion assigned specifically to the royal household. If so, Paul was escorted by Caesar's secret service back to Rome. So entering a ship at Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now notice Luke writes, we put to sea. Not only was Aristarchus traveling with Paul, so was Luke. It was not uncommon for Paul to travel with his friends. He had many loyal friends. And then verse 3, Paul's voyage continues. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Again, Paul finds friends. He's got friends everywhere. One Bible commentator puts it, Paul had a genius for friendship. No man in the New Testament made fiercer enemies, but few men had better friends. And notice Sergeant Julius here must have trusted Paul. Apparently, he didn't worry about him trying to escape. He knew that Paul was a man of his word and he would return. Well, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. The ship's navigator used the island of Cyprus to block the westerly winds and then sailed to Myra on the Turkish coast, or at the time what was called Asia Minor. Well, then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy. This was a bigger ship, a cargo ship, probably carrying wheat from Egypt to Rome. And he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. Now, the wind was causing choppy seas and rough sailing, slow moving. In smooth waters, the 130 miles from the port of Myra to Nidus could have been covered in a short time. Instead, under these more extreme weather conditions, it took many days. Verse 8, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of Salmone, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now look at a map, and you'll notice that Italy was due west of Nidus. But the problem was the headwinds were so strong that the captain sailed southwest. He had to sail crosswind to Crete. The ship landed in a port called Fair Havens on the southern coast of the island. Fair Havens. That sounds like a really nice place to spend the week. And so I thought that's where we would stop. 
this morning in Fair Havens. And next week, you can read the rest of the book of Acts. We'll finish Paul's voyage and we'll finish this wonderful book.